Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we're with the author of Woke Jesus, Lucas Miles. Thank you for being with us. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So I've started reading your book, but can you summarize it for those who haven't read it, what Woke Jesus is about? Yeah, Woke Jesus is really a historical deep dive into understanding the roots of progressive thought within Christianity, within the church, starting in the 1700s, kind of working our way forward. There's a lot there. It's a very it's a very robust read, I think, in many ways. Um, but I wanted to put together what I believe is, if I can you know, be humble enough to say this, is the definitive guide um, to understanding woke Christianity, specifically why it is heretical, why it's against uh, the biblical paradigm, and why and how it's leading so many Christians astray. Mm-hmm. How long have you been a pastor? I've been a pastor for—I started preaching when I was 17, uh, so I will be 44 this year. Um, so I've been preaching for a long time, and I've been a pastor in the same church, though, uh, since 2004, so almost 20 years in one location as a senior pastor. Wow. Did you always speak on wokeism and what's happening in culture from your pulpit? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, and yeah, yeah, so let me unpack that a little bit. I Early on in ministry, especially when I first started, um, I was in a university, I was in a secular school, went to Purdue University, they had a great campus ministry there at the time, Uh, and this is sort of, um, you know, this had been, you know, um, you know, early 2000s, you know, 99, 2000, right around there, it was my first years of college, and I, at that time, like Christian music was a major, major thing within the Christian world. It didn't probably have the same reputation that it does today. Um, and, you know, we had artists like the legacy of Rich Mullins. He had passed away at that point in a car accident, but, you know, it was super impactful. And there was these seeds of sort of like Christian socialism that had been planted that hadn't yet come to fruition of what they are today. But I was I was captured by that pretty early on. Um, I was infatuated with these stories of people I were reading that was reading that were like taking vows of poverty and like you know living in communes and community and these things. And and I always tell people like part of my story is there was a moment where I think like I was I was at least on the fringes of the Christian left in the this kind of early time. And, and I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't leave a biblical paradigm completely. I didn't, I didn't change my view on sexuality or gender or something like that. Um, I still believed in a biblical morality, but the social side of it, that social justice movement that was coming on the scene, that was very, very intriguing to me. And thankfully, I had some people in my life uh, that really saw, I think, that, that kind of starting to slide into that that were willing to kind of be honest with me and speak to me. And, and looking back, it really saved, you know, my, my ministry and saved probably my heart in many ways that they did so. And so I, I don't, I say this as somebody who understands sort of that siren song of progressive thought and uh, thankfully, um, you know, survived my encounter with it. Mm-hmm. One of the things we hear from pastors quite often is once they start speaking on what's going on culturally, the pushback that they would receive from their congregation. Did you ever receive any of that? Yeah. So in 20, um, so I'm in South Bend, Indiana. It's a, uh, uh, you know, Indiana's a red state, super majority red, um, though our governor's a little bit wishy-washy. And, but our county is notoriously a left-leaning county. And so 
Um, you know, Mayor Pete Buttigieg was the mayor of South Bend, you know, here in my city. So we, I started seeing Mayor Pete's rise uh, and the kind of the attention that he was getting and being quoted in Rolling Stone magazine and New York Times and different things, you know, as a small town mayor and one, I believe one of the first openly gay mayors in America. And I started warning people. I just really felt like the Lord kind of like showed me what was happening here that I started warning that this guy's making a run for higher office and people thought I was crazy. And there's just, there's no way that the small town Indiana mayor is going to run for president or something like that. And so in about 2013, 2014, I started getting a little bit more brave from the pulpit, more passionate. By 2015, 2016, I was all in. And we lost about 40 to 50% of our church when we started speaking these things out. Now, I look, I tell people, I don't own a red hat. I didn't endorse a candidate from the stage. I wasn't, it wasn't, you know, our church service was not a Trump rally, though I, I voted proudly for Donald Trump both times. Um, but, but we started talking about what does the Bible have to say about marriage, sexuality, gender, um, you know, uh, uh, open borders, um, socialism, these things. We addressed the topics head on abortion. And, and we had people that we thought were with us that when we started touching on these social issues, they were out the door. And literally, when I say 40 to 50% of our church, that was in about a four to six week period, we lost 40 to 50% of our church. It was one series that I did on what does the Bible have to say on basically developing a biblical worldview around social issues. And, and people just walked out the door. It, of course, tanked our revenue, um, put us in major jeopardy from that standpoint. And what I would tell any pastor out there today, I would do that 100 times over. Um, it has been worth every bit of effort and worth every bit of pain because where we are at now, our church has grown four times in the last year. Um, we have, you know, we've got momentum. We've got people that are on fire. We've got exciting stuff. People can't wait to come to church on Sunday. Um, and we're breaking every single, you know, bad news church statistic that's out there. We're just throwing those away and we're growing. And look, it doesn't mean it wasn't hard. There was a period of years where it was difficult. Um, but it was worth pushing through to really get us to where we are today. So, you know, pastors, we have to, we have to be bold. We have to do the right thing no matter what. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. So not too long ago, I transitioned from one church to the other. And what really sparked that is when Roe v. Wade was overturned and we went to church on Sunday, there was nothing said about it. And so I, me and my family, we start thinking, right? Like, thousands and thousands of lives and babies are going to be saved and our church isn't going to say a word about it. So I emailed the church and they basically told me they weren't going to give me their stance on abortion. And I said, if I am paying my tithe dollars to my church and you can't tell me where you stand on certain issues, I don't agree with that. The next week we tried a new church. And when I tell you, we walked into this church and the church sermon was about abortion. And not only that, I mean, it had biblical backing a fantastic message and organizations that come alongside people and support them no matter what stage they're at. And I just remember sitting in that church service from one church that wouldn't give a stance to another church that took a stance, but said, wait, if you're in this situation, here is how God would instruct you to do and then bring support alongside. Yeah, I was, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, 10 years ago, I mean, I would have, I was pro-life, 
but I wasn't talking about these issues from the you know from the pulpit by any means on a regular basis. There might be one-off comments, but I would never have thought of doing like a, you know a full message addressing that uh, the way in which we have you know multiple times over the last several years. I was in D.C. the um, the the day that the leak broke um, that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. I've, I've been spending more and more time kind of in D.C. with different you know partnerships that we have. And I was I was probably three blocks from the Supreme Court. I was having dinner with um, a couple journalist friends of mine and my publicist. And all of a sudden, one of the gals, um, you know, she just is she's looking at her phone and she just gasps. And, you know, and everybody there is conservative and pro-life and everything. And, and we're like, what is it? And she's like, Rose overturned. Like, we're like, wait, what? You know, and the the leak had broke. She's reading the story kind of in real time processing this. And um, and you know, I'm I, at that point, I I had not been to DC a whole lot. I was kind of still getting my bearings, and I go, How far are we from the Supreme Court right now? And she's like, It's like right there. And so, you know, three or four of us jump in a jump in a friend's Jeep. We drive up to the Supreme Court. We were probably, you know, three of the first 100 people to arrive to the steps on the night that it was overturned. And I'll tell you, every single group almost or person who was there initially was there protesting. The first group, so when we got there, you know, and, and this this friend of mine, Lindsay Keith, um, if, hopefully it's okay I said her name. She's talked about this before. She was, you know, from, from my vantage point, she was one of the first, if not the first you know, really true journalists in the country to go live from the steps of the Supreme Court the night that the that the um, that the leak broke, and that's literally my buddy and I holding our cell phones, skyping into the news network. You know, getting this shot of her reporting on what's happening. The first group to show up was Atheists um, for Life. That was the first pro-life group to show up. The church didn't make it until like the next day. And I think that that's historically, unfortunately, what we've seen in America is that the church seems to be a day behind in a lot of these issues. And, and I think that what you, you know, described is so true. I mean, we had a standing ovation. I came back from this trip, you know, shared what happened. And then, you know, we had obviously months later where we have the truly overturned. And uh, we had a standing ovation in our church, you know, when Roe was overturned. And, and that's how it should be, uh, because we should celebrate when, you know, when wickedness is abolished and righteousness prevails. Uh, and I think that that's that's so important that we not compromise. So kudos to you and your family, you know, for making that tough choice, you know, as well. Mm -hmm. You've talked previously about how liberal ideology has hijacked the church. Could you expand on that? Yeah. And, and what most people don't recognize is that this is intentional. Um, there are groups that are putting money. I just was reading a story today. Um, from a friend's newsletter that um, that uh, I believe that places like the Lilly Foundation have you know put in I think they've you know have a million dollar grant that they've given to Christianity Today. Um, Christianity Today is is a publication that's been drifting further and further left. It seems like with every single publication they put out, magazine, um, and you have the same thing happening in seminaries. You have major donors that are giving money to seminaries that are either foundations or they're left leaning, you know, millionaires and billionaires. And then they're kind of coming back, and and it it seems that what they're doing. And I have a lot of this documented in my book, The Christian Left, and also in Woke Jesus. I I had the receipts there that you can look these things up. Is they 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 seem to be sort of really you know kind of drawing on those donations and and really making requests you know to implement you know DEI programs or or uh, um, you know some sort of um, you know uh, kind of 
distancing from certain topics, maybe sexuality or or marriage or something like that. And we're seeing that, you know, even seminary students are being trained by professors that were put in place and hired by leftist board members um, in one strong, you know, evangelical um, seminaries. And then they're getting this kind of woke education. They're learning about things like the gospel of Q, which is a complete fabrication used to twist the gospel into something that it's not, but it's taught at an academic level. Uh, we are, we're seeing pastors that are introduced to the historical Jesus, which is a 1700s, 1800s invention of basically Jesus more as a great social justice warrior rather than the savior of the world. It kind of diminishes the miraculous to elevate Jesus's humanity. That's being taught in a lot of our Bible college today. Liberation theology, this hybrid between Marxism and Catholicism and or Marxism and evangelicalism, depending on the version, is being taught in our schools today. And so and then we're shocked when pastors are woke. You know, the, the thing that I've said more than once is that, you know, I don't, I mean, we, I hear people talk all the time about, oh, these pastors, they're just, they're cowards. I don't think that these pastors that didn't speak up are cowards. I think they're deceived. I think that they are, I think that pastors, they act upon their, their strongestly held, their strongest held convictions. And pastors that had a strong held conviction about freedom, about the truth, about about you know um, uh, uh, you know just personal liberty in the Holy Spirit and these things they they stood up and they spoke out even at the risk of personal peril whether it's the 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 shrinking of their church loss of money you know risk of being you know imprisoned or fined or whatever it was um, but the pastors that didn't speak it's not because they're not it's not because they're cowards or they're not brave the pastors who didn't speak have belief systems that prevented them from speaking. They've already been compromised, and they're not just compromised emotionally in most cases, they're compromised ideologically and theologically, and so therefore they see the church's job as just to kind of support the state and do whatever they're told. It's a misreading of Romans 13, and they learn that by you know these corrupt institutions or institutions that have been corrupted is probably a better way to say that. And it doesn't mean Bible college is bad or that everybody who's you know teaching at a Bible college is woke. It's not the case. There's great professors, just like there's still great school teachers. Not every school teacher is, is bad. But these institutions have started to be corrupted. And, and you know, it is it is harder than ever to find a, a really true biblical education, you know, in this world today or biblical training for pastors, which is why organizations like what you're doing and what we're doing, I think, are so important. Mm -hmm. So I went to a private Christian college in Florida, and one of my Bible professors, I'll never forget this moment, um, he identified as a pacifist, and part of his argument would be of being a pacifist if he came home and saw somebody doing something horrible to his wife, that he wouldn't have the right to end that. Um and I just remember sitting in that class and being like, and then it got a little, like we started wading deeper and deeper into the waters. But I remember thinking, how do people think that this is okay? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, he's, he's doing the right thing in that he's taking it down to the smallest common denominator. That's the right answer. So if you want to develop a theology 
say, of war, which there is, you know, Augustine probably has the most famous kind of theology of just war uh, that is that is really developed. It's still util it's utilized by, you know, military schools today in, in, in different settings. Um, but, you know, so you look at the, what's the most common denominator? If I saw a helpless person being attacked by somebody, whether it's somebody related to me or, or you know, that's, that's the helpless person or somebody just on the street, if I saw a helpless person being attacked um, and they were not able to defend themselves, would it be just for me to get involved, even if it meant using, um, you know, using force or using deadly force? And I believe that any moral person would have to say, yes, not only does the Old Testament call for that, okay, that already we see this laid out in Scripture, um, that it's justifiable to respond in those situations, that we could develop a theology of self-defense within Scripture. We can also develop a theology of defense for others, the helpless, the broken. Uh, and look, if it's wrong, I mean, here's, here's the lack of logic in this. Because it, you typically, it's a more progressive thinker that's saying that. So they would be the same people that would say it's our duty to take care of somebody else's health care. It's our duty to take care of somebody else's, you know, situation or welfare or these sorts of things. But, but yet you have an actual situation that is like true physical peril to them where they cannot do anything and respond. And at that point, it's passivism. That doesn't make sense to me. And so, you know, the scripture, you know, like, the, the issue is that we've not developed theology of these different issues. In my book, Woke Jesus, I give a theology of the vaccine. I give a theology, or I should say, I give a theology of personal choice regarding the vaccine. I give a theology about, you know, uh, mandates and lockdowns and why it was unjust for the government and really unrighteous, not just bad policy, but why it was actually a violation of scripture and religious freedom. Most Christians, they were in that situation. I mean, I, I can't even tell you how many Christians came to me during COVID and they were like, I need a, I, I need, you know, can you help me get a, um, you know, kind of a, a religious liberty exemption for the COVID vaccine? But they, and I would start asking them, well, what's your theology about why? They, and they didn't know, you know, it's, it's like we had to start at ground zero. So all these issues, it just exposes the fact that we as Christians, we need to always have an answer and be prepared to have an answer for anybody who asks of us. We need to develop theology on these, these more complex social topics. Mm -hmm. How, as a pastor, would you advise other pastors who say, well, around the LGBTQ movement, right? How do you say you're welcome to come to church, Jesus loves you, but walk that fine line of where it's gone to? Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I had a um uh, a situation here recently where somebody from our church had met somebody, and I, I don't know their specific situation, but they were we'll, we'll say they were somewhere within the the uh, uh, the spectrum of that LGBT you know paradigm, and they were talking to this person, and the person asked them, um you know uh because they they invited him to our church, and the person asked him, well you know, am I welcome to come to your church, and our the person from our ministry you know i don't think they really realized fully what this person was asking what they were asking was would your church affirm my lifestyle and the person from our ministry was like of course you're welcome to come to our church everybody's welcome to come you know and they kind of just had this innocence with how they approached you know this this question that the person was asking and and i think that you know um Look, this the issue of sexuality and and specifically within the LGBT spectrum. It's it's really it is different in some ways than other issues, but.
but it's similar in other ways to other issues as well. Um, bottom line is everybody's welcome to attend our ministry. Uh, we don't run people out the door. We don't shoo them off. We're not trying to get rid of anybody. But anyone, regardless of what it is, whether it's sexuality uh, related, whether it's um, you know uh, stealing, lying, whatever, anybody who is promoting sin um, and and highlighting and promoting personal rebellion or flaunting personal rebellion, then we have an obligation as Christians to 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 uh, comment on that, to address that, and when necessary, protect the body from individuals like that that and and you know um and we see that example in first and second corinthians where we had you know uh somebody who was boasting about this sexual affair that they had and paul's writing them and going guys what are you doing you know it wasn't an issue of homosexuality uh but it was it was an ungodly relationship they're boasting about it other people are sort of supporting them in it this kind of early form of like you know it's a little bit anachronistic but early form of progressivism existing in the church and Paul came in and made it clear, and they they dealt with it, and then this person ends up, you know, it appears in 2 Corinthians becoming repentant, and then Paul encourages them to welcome this individual back into the body after they were truly repentant about the behavior. The roadmap is there in Scripture. We've complicated it, or because we've allowed kind of the, the, the mob to, to get involved. I mean, uh, up until recently, you know, nobody knew what was said in a church unless you showed up to the church. But live streaming and podcasting has changed that. And now the world is sort of starting to comment on the doctrine of ministries or how they approach situations. And, and you know, pastors have to not be moved by that. We have to continue to operate because you are the one, the pastors and elders, they are the ones that God has given authority over that church to govern it, to, to have their sphere of influence there, to oversee it. And, and we need to make sure that we're treating that, you know, uh, with the level of, of um, sober-mindedness that it requires you know, to ensure that we do a good job and that, that uh, you know, it's it's always that balance of grace and truth that we, it's it's not trying to have a little grace and a little truth. It's in it, I use the word balance, but it's really having grace and truth present at the same time that yes, you are loved and we're going to offer you dignity and we're going to show you respect. But yes, there is this thing called truth and your behavior, if it is, if it's against God, like we're going to lovingly, you know, address that to the degree that you're willing to be pastored right now. Um, but you have a choice in that and you have a choice on how, you know, uh, to what degree you allow us to speak into your life. If you just want to come and sit in the back row and not cause any trouble, you're welcome to come for the rest of your life. But if you will say, Hey, I want to get involved. I want to get more plugged into the church. At that point, we have an obligation to really pastor people. And that means being willing to address every area of life. That's a great example. I always think about how Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he presented himself that way to us, it would be an easy no, right? But it has to come through deceiving. It has to come through all of these different forms that we might not recognize right away. But you're doing a lot to work with pastors. So as we close, tell us about American Pastor Project. Yeah, so we have an initiative that we've launched called, uh, uh, it's the American Pastor Project. The website is AmericanPastorProject.org. And on this website, we've put together kind of a high-level doctrinal statement that pastors can sign this. They can basically affirm their commitment to preaching biblical orthodoxy. And then also that they can demonstrate that they're going to take a stand against wokeism from the pulpit. And with wokeism, what we're meaning is Marxism, socialism, globalism, um, you know, uh, uh, really violating people's um, personal, you know, liberties and, and personal faith through things like uh, mandates and everything else that we saw. Uh, of course, divergent views of sexuality. I mean, there's a whole list of things that we talk about on there. 
And, and this is really about asking pastors to do their job. Are you going to teach the word of God or are you going to bend with culture? Look, we, we, if you study church history, you can find seasons of the church where, where pastors gave into culture. Um, you know, this is, this is one reason the Reformation happened is because of, of, of so much of the, um, the abuses that were taking place, the indulgences, the, the, uh, just the lavish lives that, that a lot of clergy were living in and sort of taking advantage of their position, taking advantage of the finances, everything else, that drove at least part of the motivation for the Reformation to begin with. And we're seeing, you know, kind of this new thing where pastors are more concerned with, you know, what shoes they're wearing or, you know, where they got their hair cut or where this happened than they are of like, are they actually teaching the word of God? And and this is, you know, these pastors, again, they're not, they're not cowards. They're deceived. And, and we have to recognize that. And I think that we have to be humble enough to come back to the Lord and say, God, I don't know where I got off track, but I only want what you have to offer me. I mean, the reality is life is short. It's a terminal experience. And why would I not make my sole focus as much as I am able, um, not only my eternity, which I believe, you know, for some people is, is you know, uh, uh, you know is, is a place to where, I would tremble if I were them, but but also the eternity of people around me that I really want to do everything I can. And you know the the disciples and the followers of Christ in the first century and second century and really first several hundred years of Christianity would not have given their lives in persecution, in in uh, famine, in uh, being fed to the beasts in the amphitheaters, burned at the stake. They would not have done that if universalism would have been true, if everybody's saved and it just doesn't matter, if all roads lead to God, you know, all these sort of woke doctrines that we see, they wouldn't have done it if Christianity would have just been a social movement. They did it because eternity was at stake and they cons- they considered it greater to identify with their savior um, in su- despite suffering and in suffering if it meant gaining uh, really a better resurrection, gaining, you know, uh, um, being an ambassador to reach others, to be able to have that opportunity to see them come into the kingdom of, of light. And and I think that we've lost sight of that in the American church in many ways. And I really hope we can recapture it. That's what we're doing here at the American Pastor Project is, is really inspiring pastors, getting them resources in their hands so that they can really walk this fight out, you know, and, and be everything that their community needs to truly be able to hear the real gospel. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being with me today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 